0: what we've seen in the empirical data demonstrates that when rate hike cycles are complete, real estate and infrastructure equities tend to significantly outperform at least in the first six months after the rate hike cycle is completed. So we think real estate will do particularly well next year.
1: Hey everyone. Thank you for joining us today. We have a very special guest, Dennis Mitchell, who is the CEO and CIO at Starlight Capital. This is an honor for me. Dennis is a regular guest with Bloomberg, and I know Dennis is very busy. He's doing great things, and it's very inspiring to me. So, uh, Dennis, thank you very much for taking the time. How are you doing today?
0: I'm great. Thanks, Mateo.
1: That's very good. So, Dennis, uh, tell us a little bit about yourself.
0: I'm not sure what there is to tell. I mean, my day job is as uh, the chief executive officer and chief investment officer at Starlight Capital. You know, we founded the firm about five and a half years ago. And m- many of my colleagues are people that I've worked with at a previous asset manager um, for the better part of 10 years. Um, you know, I-, I have my CFA, my MBA and... Uh, You know, I have a passion for managing money, and I think we've built a great platform at Starlight Capital that combines real estate infrastructure and diversified equities into solutions that uh, Canadian investors can really use.
1: Oh, that's very good. So talking about managing money, how is real estate doing compared to other asset classes?
0: This year has been a tough year for all risky assets. I mean, central banks across the planet have been hiking rates in a synchronized fashion for the better part of three years now. And it's very difficult for risky assets to perform well when the risk-free rate is rising as much as it has in such a short period of time. And real estate having a a relatively high level of debt compared to other asset classes is really bearing the brunt of that. So I think it's real estate and utilities that have really performed the worst uh, this year and really since the rate hike cycle has begun. But the good news is is that uh, inflation has come down dramatically. Uh, The trend is firmly established. And so we think uh, most central banks are done hiking rates which should give us room for real estate and other sectors like utilities to rebound.
1: Oh, that's very good. So you mentioned the risk-free interest rate. So you think that has stabilized now?
0: Well, I think we're closer to the end in finding the terminal rate than than the beginning of the hiking cycle when it's uh, certainly um, most people were unsure of when it would end. I, I remember the first time somebody said that there would be nine rate hikes Um, Most people thought that person was crazy. I think it was uh, Ethan over at Bank of America who suggested that. And I certainly was skeptical. But uh, in hindsight, he was bang on, if not a little conservative in his call for 925 basis point rate hikes. So, you know, the, the, the market is closer to digesting the terminal rate and the end of this rate hike cycle, and then we'll be able to determine what valuations should be we'll have a better idea of what growth will be. You know, US GDP came in significantly higher than most people expected. So it looks like at least the North American economy has weathered this rate hike cycle particularly well.
1: That's very good. So in your opinion, how will real estate perform in 2024?
0: Well, our opinion is that the Bank of Canada has done hiking interest rates. We think that the Federal Reserve Bank in the United States will potentially hike one more time in November of this year and then We think the Bank of Canada will actually be in a position to start cutting rates in probably Q2 of next year, maybe Q3. And we think that the Federal Reserve will, I think they'll probably be absent from the market next year because it is a U.S. presidential election year. Uh, But then starting in 2025, we think that the uh, Federal Reserve will start cutting rates. Uh, Global growth is slowing precipitously, and most of the alphabet organizations like the IMF have cut their global growth forecasts dramatically. So, We think then when the rest of the rate hikes from late last year and early this year start to work their way through the system, there'll be even more downward pressure on global growth. So having made the argument for lower interest rates, what we've seen in the empirical data demonstrates that when rate hike cycles are complete, real estate and infrastructure equities tend to significantly outperform at least in the first six months after the rate hike cycle is completed. So we think real estate will do particularly well next year. Um, certainly, you know, early year weighted, but as rate hikes start to wake their way through the through the market and the economy, we might see real estate actually take a leadership position in terms of total returns next year. You know, the complete opposite of the last little while.
1: Oh, that's very good. So that, that's great news then for real estate investors.
0: Definitely. Myself being one of them.
1: That's for sure, for sure. That's good. So you mentioned that real estate would take its leadership position. Has that always been the case? Maybe pre-pandemic or couple of years back?
0: Well, what we have seen through our research is that companies that uh, pay a consistent dividend tend to outperform, and companies that pay rising dividends tend to outperform even more. And so if you, if you superimpose that model on real estate, uh, REITs have to pay out uh, at least 90% of their taxable income in order to maintain their, you know, their favourable tax status as REITs. So what you find is that REITs are natural dividend compounders, And as a result, they've historically outperformed the market as a whole. And then if you buy high quality REITs with good quality real estate, they tend to have an ability to increase their distributions consistently over time. And so those REITs have historically outperformed the market. So we like real estate longer term. Most of the pension plans have got a healthy 13%, 15% weighting in uh, in private real estate. Uh, So we think it's an asset class that should be core to every Canadian investor's portfolio.
1: That's good. That's very good. And it's unfortunate what's happening in the Middle East right now. Uh, what impact does a conflict like what's happening in the Middle East have on the real estate asset class?
0: Well, any type of conflict like a war or a major sort of um, military uh, operation it is going to have negative impacts on all risky assets. Um, any type of armed conflict increases uncertainty, volatility, risk, and all of those work to put downward pressure on the value of risky assets. Now, I will say real estate is unique because it is a, a very, very local asset being immovable property. So a, an armed conflict on one continent shouldn't have a huge um, specific impact on real estate on another continent.
1: So the Bank of Canada maintained its policy rate on October 25th, which was expected. But what will it take for the Bank of Canada to achieve its goal for inflation?
0: The the Bank of Canada themselves came forward and said that they would not hit their 2% inflation target in 2024. They thought they would get there in 2025. So I think what that tells us is that the Bank of Canada thinks it's done enough in the short term to get the economy towards 2% inflation. They reserve the right to, uh, to continue hiking rates in the future if that trajectory uh, deviates. So I think the Bank of Canada has arrived at the circumstances that make them feel comfortable that you know, over the course of the next 12 to 16 months, we will get to their 2% inflation target.
1: That's very good. And with regards to investment sectors or regions, are there any that you find promising or challenging in the current economic environment?
0: China is a region that uh, the real estate market has struggled. You know, they have a a significant heavy debt burden that a lot of real estate entities in that country have struggled to meet. Uh, Some of the very large real estate entities have declared bankruptcy on various parts of their business. So that's a market that we wouldn't allocate capital to. On the other hand, uh, North American real estate is where we have our expertise, you know, where we're domiciled. And those are markets, specifically Canada and the US, where we see significant cash flow growth, where we see the end of rate hike cycles, and where we think uh, the REITs are trading at anywhere from 30% to, to 10% discounts to their net asset value. So you know, those are markets that we feel comfortable allocating capital to.
1: Okay, that's good. And you mentioned Canada and uh, the US. Is there any difference uh, in terms of the strategies that you employ in the two countries?
0: No, we're we're very focused on building uh, concentrated portfolios of high quality businesses that we can acquire um, when they trade for less than they're worth. So in this type of market environment, we find lots of great businesses that are trading at uh, significant discounts to what the businesses are worth. So you know, whether it's the U.S. or Canada, there really isn't difference between how we employ our strategy.
1: That's very good. And what's your approach to ESG in your investment decisions?
0: Well, our investment strategy is to let the companies do all the heavy lifting. You know, I, I I know that it's supposed to be a function of us getting in and out of the market with perfect timing to capture, you know, valuation arbitrage. But that's generally not the way we make money. The way we make money for our clients is we find great businesses with good structural long term drivers And then we're both patient and aggressive you know we're patient when waiting for those companies to trade down to attractive values and then aggressive when they do to acquire very large stakes such that we benefit from those companies mean their stocks mean reverting as their performance um, from an operational standpoint uh, mirrors what we underwrote we let the companies do all of the heavy lifting so it would be our approach to allow the companies to deploy esg strategies and uh, for our unit holders to benefit from the deployment of those ESG strategies. But we ourselves don't have a specific ESG screen that we utilize. It would be difficult to quantify that in an Excel spreadsheet. We do find that the best quality companies tend to embrace ESG principles as the normal course of doing business. So it works out on our behalf anyways.
1: Why do you think uh, that top quality or the high quality companies embrace ESG? Well, business is a series of
0: optimization decisions. What to produce, how to produce it, where, what to charge for it, who are you going to compete with on what grounds. So it just makes sense that if you have a diversity of lived experience on your team, um, a diversity of cognition and problem solving, then you should be able to come up with more optimal solutions for any problem. So what we have found, you know, McKinsey has done a lot of work on diversity and inclusion in the workplace, and they've discovered that You know, companies with more gender diversity in their executive ranks uh, have a 25 percent chance of outperforming and companies with more ethnic diversity in their executive ranks have a 35 percent probability of outperforming. So we like companies that have got robust ESG policies because we just think it makes good business sense.
1: Okay, that's very good. And earlier on in our conversation, you had mentioned that you take the long term approach to your investments. Is there any reason for that?
0: Well, our funds have got a collection of investors with varying different timelines of their investment. You know, some people are going to be looking to allocate capital for the next three years, some for the next 30. So from our standpoint, uh, we're always looking, you know, we don't have a a definitive timeline. The fund's life is infinite. So that lends itself to a more long term approach to allocating capital and generating returns.
1: Okay, that's very good. And I know that you're the co-founder of the Black Opportunity Fund. Uh, What inspired you to start the Black Opportunity Fund?
0: Well, the fund was founded by 51 Black professionals from across the country, right? Lawyers, doctors, accountants, portfolio managers, other financial professionals. And it's important to note that these were from across the country. So multiple provinces were represented. And the idea that the 51 of us had in founding Black Opportunity Fund was just that. Um, Racism denies people the opportunity that they've earned. And so the Black Opportunity Fund was created to uh, restore the opportunities that racism robs people of. And I I would point out that, you know, if if you look at Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and uh, if you look at uh, Elon Musk, if you look at uh, Jeff Bezos, these are all cisgendered, straight white men who have impacted the way we consume media, the way we shop for things, the way we, you know, the transportation that we use. Um, They've really changed the world, I would argue, you know, predominantly for the better. Um, You know, their innovations and their inventions were not limited to the benefit of cisgendered straight white men. They accrued to all people everywhere, quite frankly. And so, you know, imagine a world where those four gentlemen had been steered towards different careers because they were straight white men. All of us would suffer. But racism does that to us every day. Um, Whether it's racism against black people, anti-Semitism, sexism, anti-Indigenous sentiment... All of these things rob all of us of the contributions of people from these marginalized communities. And so the Black Opportunity Fund works very hard to restore those opportunities for Black people such that they can be full contributing members of whatever society they're in. So we've been very successful. You know, just in 2023 alone, we've distributed two and a half million dollars to Black-led, Black-focused, and Black-serving charities, not-for-profits, and businesses you know we've uh, granted over a million dollars this year to not for profits and charities doing vital and impactful work in child and youth and healthcare and arts and culture and criminal justice we've supported over a thousand black led black focused black serving businesses with capacity grants with uh programming and so the black opportunity fund has been very very impactful and i'm 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 honored to be on the board and to lead the investment committee and you know, we, we started a lending strategy that provides capital to Black entrepreneurs that have been denied by traditional financial institutions, and very soon we'll be launching our venture capital strategy that'll provide growth capital and startup capital to various Black entrepreneurs. So the fund has been very, very busy in its three years, and, you know, I encourage everyone to, to visit, you know, www.blackopportunityfund.ca uh, to see our three-year anniversary video, which chronicles everything we've accomplished over the last three years, the impact that we've had. And uh, if you like what you see, feel free to donate, uh, feel free to reach out to get involved and uh, certainly use us as a resource in, in the battle against the impact of racism.
1: Wow, that's awesome. That's amazing. You mentioned that you started lending towards Black founders that have been denied by the banks. Why would they be denied?
0: Well, most of them have been denied capital from traditional financial institutions, You know, it's a a multitude of reasons, but, you know, the reason we're most focused on solving for is is racism, right? Racism in the underwriting process and the intake process and the adjudication process. You know, we have an adjudication process and partners who uh, are looking to say yes to Black entrepreneurs and are comfortable, you know, adjudicating the businesses and industries that they are active in and are willing to work with them when needed um, to get their loan application across the line. And I'm happy to say that, you know, in our lending so far, we haven't had any issues with repayments or defaults or anything like that. So we've really provided supportive capital to Black entrepreneurs across the country to the benefit of all Canadians.
1: Yes. So it's to the benefit of all Canadians. That's very good. That is very good. Uh, One last question for you, uh, Dennis. How can one support or get involved with uh, the Black Opportunity Fund in some form or fashion?
0: Well, as I said, feel free to visit www.blackopportunityfund.ca. Uh, you can donate, you can you know, take a, avail yourself of the resources that we have. You can reach out to have a greater dialogue. Our executive director, Craig Wellington, is a fantastic human being um, who is you know, responsible for a lion's share of the impact that Black Opportunity Fund has had, him and his team. And so there are a number of resources and ways people can get involved, but it starts with going to the website.
1: That's very good. That, that is awesome. Well, Dennis, this has been a great conversation. Thank you very much for taking the time. I was really looking forward to our conversation. And I'll go back and listen because, you know, you brought up so many good points.
0: Happy to help. Have a great day, Mateo.
1: Mm-hmm. Thank you.